Welcome to Vision of Zion. Today I'm with Sean White. Hello, Sean. Morning, Craig. Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you, too. It's been a few days since we've been able to do this. Today we're going to cover Isaiah chapter 17. Sean, why don't you tell us what this chapter is about? In this chapter, Isaiah turns his focus to Damascus, the capital of Syria. This land was once given to the tribe of Ephraim. Today, the Ephraimites largely dwell within Europe and the U.S. Yes, one of the scattered tribes that prospered, uh, meaning they multiplied and replenished the earth. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's let's begin with reading from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'll do the reading, and you'll do the uh, provide us with your commentary. Okay. Verse one: The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. And then verses 2 and 3. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks, which shall lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. The fortress shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. It will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says Yahweh of armies. Anciently, the tribe of Ephraim dwelt in the Syria with its capital city of Damascus. God is telling the Ephraimites that their large and thriving capital city will be destroyed and that many of their outlying cities will be abandoned. The fortress shall cease from Ephraim. This shows that the protection that the tribe of Ephraim once enjoyed is removed In other words, God's hand of protection is removed. Today, the Ephraimites have been given the promised land so long as they serve God. In Ether 2.9, we see, And now we can behold the decrees of God concerning this land, that is a land of promise, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. And the fullness of his wrath come upon them that are ripened in iniquity. This when will they happen are ripened in iniquity. Right. When they are ripened in iniquity. I'm sorry. And this will happen when they have become ripened in iniquity. Eventually, only the righteous remnant of the tribe of Ephraim will be left. This righteous remnant that is left will be God's glory in whom he is well pleased. Now, going back to the righteous remnant, it's not saying that the tribe of Ephraim is the only remnant left. This is just saying the righteous part of the tribe of Ephraim will be left. All right. We'll come back to that maybe after we, we're done with all of the verses and have a little bit of a discussion about this. Let's read verses 4 through 6. It will happen in that day that the glory of Jacob will be made thin and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be like when the harvester gathers the wheat and his arms reaps the grain. Yes, it will be like when one gleans grain in the valley of Raphaim. Yet gleanings will be left there, like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five, in the outermost branches of a fruitful tree, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. The word Jacob 
is a code word to describe the type of person. Jacob was an individual seeking to hear God's voice, but has not yet received the seal upon his forehead from Christ, signifying his total commitment to God. When Jacob received this seal upon his head, Christ changed his name to Israel. This is the same pattern for us today. Once we receive the seal upon our forehead, we will receive a new name from Christ directly. This is not the name given by someone on earth. When these th- when will these things happen? It will happen in a day when the power and influence of the people in the promised land is made thin. The abundance of food and our prosperity will slowly cease. The Valley of Rip- Rephem is where the Philistines attacked the Israelites under the leadership of King David. The Philistines took most of the Israelites' crops before they were driven out. At the time, if the Israelites looked hard, they could find a little bit to eat when the Philistines had left. God is saying that we too will be like the crops in the valley of Rephem, where will be very few of us left, just like Aram's righteous remnant in Isaiah 17, 1-3. Why does God use these types of experiences? In Deuteronomy 8, 2, he sought to humble the Israelites, to prove their willingness to know what was in their heart, and if they will keep his commandments. I think that this is very significant here in Deuteronomy 8, 2, seeking to, why does God do this to us? To humble the Israelites, to prove their willingness, to know what was in their heart, and if they will keep his commandments. All right. Let's read verses 7 and 8. In that day, people will look to their maker, and their eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, neither shall they respect that which their fingers have made, either the Asherah poles or the incense altars. The Israelites of today will have to fight off the king of Assyria's alliance that invades their land, just as the Israelites had to fight the Philistines. After the Ephraimites fight off their invaders, they will humble themselves before God and seek to hear his voice. Once the Israelites go through these humbling experiences, they will have little regard for the things they have accumulated in the world the worldly things they look, they once took pride in, their elaborate homes, their cars, their clothes, have all become idols of prosperity to them. Let's read verse 9. In that day, their strong cities will be like the forsaken places in the woods and on the mountaintop, which were forsaken from before the children of Israel, and it will be a desolation. He is likening our path to the path of the Israelites. As we rise up in righteousness, we will, we will drive out our invaders also. The cities that our leaders once ruled from are abandoned and desolate. Verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your strength. Therefore, you plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In the day of your planting, you hedge it in. In the morning, 
you make your need blossom. Excuse me, you make your seed blossom. But the harvest flees away in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. The people have forgotten Christ and his atoning sacrifice. The only way back to God's presence is through using the atonement Christ provides for us. During this time in which we have forgotten our Savior, we do not seek his advice. We cannot get food in traditional ways. The things we plant fail until we start using the atonement and seek our Savior's advice in planting during the years of tribulation. Verses 12 through 14. Ah, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas, and the rushing of nations that rush like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far off, will be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like the whirling dust before the storm. At evening, behold terror. Before the morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and a lot of those who rob us. People and nations will rage like the raging of many waters. As the river roars, you cannot hear anything around you but the roar of the water. They rage because they have lost their prosperity and way of life. This will not... Excuse me. This will only last a little while, and then God will rebuke them. When God rebukes them, them that have robbed you, they will flee and be driven like chaff in a great wind. The rebuking of those who robbed and plundered God's children will happen very quickly after the people are humbled. All right. Well, that ends Isaiah chapter 17. Let's have some discussion about this. Uh, as you pointed out at the beginning, Sean, you mentioned how Ephraim, uh, or I guess, let me, let me take that back. You said that Egypt represents uh, the United States, correct? Yes, in most texts and everything, uh, as we're relating to us today. Now, in this particular stance and everything, he's talking about the burden of to Damascus and the land of Damascus, which was a land promised and given to the people of Syria, or I mean, it was part of Syria, which was given to the Ephraimites to dwell. So the Ephraimites are living in a chosen land, and uh, we are likened unto Egypt living in a promised land, which is the land of America, right? Yeah, Egypt more represents the time of prosperity and the time of being the center of the world where everything goes out forth from it and um, it's kind of like moving from parable to parable and um, trying to liken it to that type of people and liken it to our situation and I think we can liken it and I'm going to refer to uh, Abraham Gilyadi's translation of the book of Isaiah and his introduction talking about who these types are uh, that Isaiah is referring to. So we do know that anciently there was this invasion of the land of Israel, the nation of Israel by the Assyrians. So there's definitely 
modern context at the time it was written. But of course, we also know that these things, at least as I understand it, did not happen anciently, right? We didn't have uh, Egypt being uh, destroyed. We didn't have the people being the remnant that are left. We don't see them yet in the history of Israel, um, you know, conquering those who made the land desolate, correct? Correct. And even in uh, chapter 22 that I'm currently working on and stuff, the treasure is replaced with a Christ-like person that will, or a person that will build the kingdom of God from this cornerstone and everything, and there will be nothing that shakes it. And that was never seen at that time. So he's using a likeness or situation and applying it to us today from what he knew and what he could see. As I, as I like to say it, he cuts and pastes from the newspaper of current events to paint a picture of how things are going to play out. There are These are strong metaphors, strong uh, prophetic hints about the future. And this idea about a remnant uh, is everywhere in the scriptures. It's in the Bible. It's in the Book of Mormon. It's in Christ's teachings to the people in the land of Bountiful. I'd like to read a little bit from uh, Gileadi's book <clears throat> to bolster this idea and to, by a very well-respected scholar, and I think he uh, is one of the foremost, if not the foremost scholar on the book of Isaiah. He says here, this is page 72, how, for example, does Isaiah describe Assyria as one of two superpowers in the world as they existed in Isaiah's day? The other is the other being Egypt. He describes Assyria as coming from the north, oppressive and ruthless, a law unto itself, militaristic and bent on world domination, imposing its yoke of servitude on other nations, encroaching on the world by degrees, swallowing up territories, and setting up all the surrounding peoples in fear of it. Hmm. I guess that kind of sounds like a modern story <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when the world is ripe in iniquity, Assyria suddenly bursts forth like a flood. With its alliances, with its alliance of nations, it sweeps over the entire earth, conquering, destroying by fire and by the sword, leaving, wreaking, leaving havoc and disaster in its wake, capturing the whole world. Only Zion slash Jerusalem, a safe place for the Lord's righteous, does Assyria not conquer. Well, this is exactly what happened with Enoch, too. Assyria invades even Egypt the other great superpower. Assyria penetrates e Egypt and ravages her land. I'm going to skip down here to the other superpower. The other superpower of e Isaiah's time, Egypt, was traditionally a civilized nation. Isaiah describes Egypt as industrious, but now enduring economic problems, stable, but now suffering political decline. Now just think about the United States and does this fit, right? Yeah. Economic problems, stable but now suffering political decline. Religious but in the main idolatrous, having fertile irrigated lands but experiencing drought. It possesses vast forces of chariots and horsemen to which the smaller nations of the world look for protection against Assyria. See Isaiah 30 verses 1 and 2 and Isaiah 31 verse 1. Egypt represents the only military power sufficiently strong to counter Assyria. 
Many, therefore, ally themselves with Egypt. Their hopes are dashed, however, when Assyria exposes Egypt's weaknesses in a military confrontation. So this is not, you know, a stretch. And in fact, is the reason why the Lord, I believe, has told us to study the words of Isaiah. Right. So we'll know the future and see what's coming. If the book of Isaiah were only historical concerning Isaiah and Assyria and, and Egypt, its neighbors, then the Savior would not say at the time of his resurrection and return to the people in the <clears throat> land of Bountiful, he wouldn't say, uh, read this. He would say, oh, that's old history. Don't worry about it. But that's yeah. not what the Savior's telling us. He's saying, no Isaiah, no Isaiah. And people like Avraham Gileadi, luckily for our benefit, with the background of the restoration of the gospel, have dug into this book, and you're digging into it here with your notes to understand why it is still relevant and why a third of the book is quoted in the Book of Mormon. So yeah. this is just really, really important for us to understand and get past the symbolism and see it for what it is, which is helping us to navigate in our day. All right. Um, like I've always said, um, you know, from the pre-existence down to our time, the patterns in which evil conquers the earth or things are not new. They're always repeated. And that's why we have these scriptures that help us with the patterns of what's going to happen. And it's not strange or new to us if we will open up the scriptures and pray and consult with God to know the plan. In the next part that intrigues me, Sean, is this thinning of the fatness of, of Jacob. Uh, he's been on a pretty healthy diet, and then suddenly lean times are here. <clears throat> and the Lord describes also a thinning of the fruit on the olive tree, which has always represented Israel, where there's just a few olives left. And we have two or three olives on the uppermost bough, four or five on the outermost branches. I mean, that's that's we've seen olive trees when they're in full fruiting, and that's that's pretty meager. Yeah. That's pretty meager. So this idea of a remnant is interesting, and I loved how you dug out the meaning of the valley of uh, Rephaim or Rephaim, where uh, you know they had to scrape to find food. I don't want to extrapolate too much, but we can see a time now where <clears throat> we've had droughts in the southwest. We've had all kinds of interesting weather changes in our country. And we even have uh, attempts to reorder the way in which we grow food and raise food and limitations on how we can produce food with certain fertilizers, which have allowed prosperity. So we see some of this is, in my opinion, some of it is, is God doing this or the weather, uh, the earth, Mother Earth, and then some of it is human intervention you know it was interesting to me and, and this might be helpful as i've said hugh nibley's writings about the abraham 
Isaac and Jacob, um, as Jacob sought to learn more, and ultimately before his name was changed to Israel, he was trying to understand the words of his grandfather Abraham and the scriptures and have a deeper meaning. And the Lord told him that there are some parts that he could not understand without having a second person there. So if he had a companion in reading the scriptures, that they would open up, but he could not understand them by himself as he opened this up. And so whether we join with our spouse or a dear friend and consulting back and forth, I think this is key in opening up our souls and opening up the understanding so that we can seek to have our name changed like unto uh, Jacob when his name was changed to Israel. But there's some things that just can't be understood without having that second person to work with. Well, it seems that this um, change from leanness to uh, away from the fatness has this intended effect. We have in verse 8, we have them no longer looking at altars, and this altars in this case means worshiping false gods. <clears throat> making specific reference to the Asherah pole, which is, I'm looking it up here, a sacred tree near the place where they honored the a false god, Asherah, female god of um, fertility. <clears throat> and we see them, as you pointed out, um, they lose their interest in worldly things during this transition from apparently becoming righteous or the remnant or, or remain righteous or become more righteous. And uh, I maybe think about, I can't remember which, which culture, if it was the Incas, it might've been the Mayans. I'm pretty sure it was the Incas that when uh, Cortez and others came, other Spanish conquistadors came to the Americas that there was, they didn't really have an interest in gold. Did they? I mean, for, they had, the Incas had interest of gold in gold for decorative purposes to beautify things, but um, they didn't have this uh, infatuation. This, uh, yeah, infatuation or lust for riches like the like the Spaniards and others did who came conquering. So they kind of had that <clears throat> in check, but uh, obviously we have to go through this period where we let go of worldly things. Yeah. Uh, in verse 10, the word, um, you know, where it says, therefore you plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. <clears throat> the word substitute came to my mind and you you commented on that. Uh, instead of building on the rock, we plant, but then we don't, we look for other substitutes than the rock of our salvation. Is that what you understand by the word foreign seedlings is kind of this distraction or... Yeah. Yeah, distraction in which we we get pulled away and then we don't come back to what is really the cornerstone of why we're here and how we get back to our Heavenly Father, which is the atonement and through Christ, the one and only gateway back. So on the one hand, we have something pleasant, but this the foreign seedlings, they they give us grief and desperate sorrow. All right. And uh, finally, again, this last scene where the uh, 
Lord destroys those who have terrorized um, Israel, uh, they're 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 taken care of. I get the sense, as I have throughout all these uh, scriptures and all these verses, that the period of time where Israel has to be, or the remnant has to be uh, weeded out, or has to be tried, or made lean, let's say, it's a relatively, it seems like a relatively short period of time. It is very short. Which always, you know, impressed me, because the Lord does not want, he doesn't enjoy the suffering. He he just wants people to um, stop sowing seeds of self-destruction, and get on get on course and get on track and through the rock through the savior through the atonement this is always the message uh to repent come back to the lord and the sooner we do it the better you know this is greatly amplified in second esther's and the first chapters as uh the prophet as we know him ezra in the greek it's esdras uh is coming before the lord and he is mourning the falling away of the people in spite of all the laws and statutes they've been given and the guidance they've been given to live their lives from the beginning of the earth that was always made clear from Adam on as to what needed to be done. And over and over again, like in Jacob 5 in the story of the olive tree, they keep falling away and he keeps fertilizing and propping up the orchard and or the vineyard and everything else. And they just it just continually deteriorates with the wild olives and the the fruit doesn't ripen and it's likened to us and uh, the only way he can finally with the earth being on a timeline of its own and everything is to just go, it goes right to the very last minute. And then all of a sudden, this shaking awake of us, I mean, literally shaking us awake to see if we will come back to what we knew to be true, what we know to be right, rather than focusing on the worldly things. Take all the worldly things away from us and see where we end up, who are we going to turn to in that moment. Well, Sean, I want to thank you for being on the program today. We've covered Isaiah 18 already. This is, uh, we're just wrapping up Isaiah 17. But for those listeners who are listening to this in order in which the chapters appear, we've already done chapter 18. And then after that, uh, we're going to record chapter 19. So thanks again, Sean, for joining me. Thank you so much, Craig.